Wonderful, beautiful day the Lord has blessed us with and given us the opportunity to be here. Uh, I want to welcome each of you. If you are, uh, well, let's do some reminders first. Silence your cell phone. Mine went off again in Bible class. That's twice now, two weeks in a row. Uh, communion is in the back outside the doors. If you haven't picked that up, uh, pick up that for the appropriate time. And contribution boxes are located in the back. Uh, if you're visiting, you are an honored guest and extremely welcome, and we ask that you fill out a visitor's card. It should be on the pew in front of you, and either drop it in a box or give it to one of us uh, so we can uh, have a record of your attendance and get to know you a little bit better. Uh, and it's really good to see all of you here today. It's a great day. Uh, we have our today's Church Eat Church. So we will have uh, potluck after services, and we'll be back in here at 1 o'clock for our afternoon service. There will be no 4 p.m. service today. So take note of that, and please stay and eat with us. Uh, even if you're visiting and didn't bring anything, you're more than welcome. There will be plenty. Will you pray with me before we begin, please? Father God, we are so thankful for... Um, for our very lives, Father, for all that you give us, all that you do for us. We're thankful for another beautiful day, Father, the beautiful sunshine, the opportunity and the freedom that we have to assemble together to worship you. Help us, Father, to lay aside our cares and our burdens uh, through this service. Help us to focus our minds, our hearts on you and your love and upon your son and for what he's done for us. Uh, just continue to bless our worship today, Father. May it be pleasing to you. May it be in accordance with your will, and just help us, Father, to, uh, to be blessed by our participation this morning. We're thankful for your son, and we pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand for the first song, please? Verse 10, number 722, 722, we have heard the joyful sound. <clears throat> Jesus said. 
Next hymn this morning, number 564, Savior Like a Shepherd Lead Us, 564. After this hymn, Brother Joe Galloway will have our scripture reading and prayer. Bow with me, please, as we go to God in prayer. Dear, kind, and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here together and worship you. Father, we take for granted 
all of the things that you've done for us. We need to appreciate those things. And Father, we give you thanks for our very life right now. Father, thank you for your son that provides an opportunity for us to become a child of yours. Father, thank us, thank you for the leaders of this church that lead us and try to help us to stay on the right way. Father, be with our congregation, all of those sick that are mentioned, all of those that are hurting. Father, each one of us has a list on our hearts of the ones that we want to bring before you. But Father, we ask that you would please be with the family of Virginia Garlic at her passing. Father, bless them and comfort them. Help us to support them. Father, we pray for Karina, whose sister-in-law passed away recently. Bless her, Father, and have her to look for you for strength. Father, be with Marvin Jordan and Judy as they recover, as he recovers from surgery. Father, there's so many that are dealing with cancer. We ask your blessings upon all of them and upon their families. Father, bless Kristen, James, and their children. Father, please be with Nash Walker and help him to heal. Father, we ask your blessings upon Sue Powell, upon Junior Sullivan, Larry Faulkner, Trey Davis, Roger Pryor, Father, the many, many others that we want to bring before you. We ask that you would help us to do the right things, that we may support them and help them in their time of need. Father, bless Chris as he brings a lesson today. Help us to open our minds to your word and to take those things into our heart. Father, be with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Help us to do that in the right way. Guide us through the rest of this service, Father. Be with us always. Forgive us when we do things that are wrong. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> the reading this morning is coming from James chapter 4. <clears throat> James chapter 4, verse 17. Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Next time this morning, number 299, I Stand Amazed. <clears throat> and I had a miscue in my notes. I've got verses 1, 2, and 4. So hopefully 1, 2, and 4, so we'll say. I Stand Amazed. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love me. I'll sing. 
morning. As we prepare ourselves to meet around the Lord's table, I'd like to read from Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hatred, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of re regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Grace is the true basis of salvation. It is God's gift to sinful man who does not deserve salvation. It is impossible for sinful man to work his or her way to heaven or to buy one's way through the golden gates. Grace really means that God does not treat mankind the way we should be treated. As sinners, we deserve the wrath of God, but due to God's love and merciful attributes, he is willing to forgive and forget all of the sins which mankind commits, if faith in Christ and repentance is accomplished. Therefore, mankind should never insult God by refusing to forgive themselves, nor by refusing to forget what God has forgotten. God has provided us with a memorial in the Lord's Supper. This is to remind the world that God's Son loved us so much that he was willing to die on Calvary's cross for us. Let us remember this each Sunday as we partake. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the day. Thank you, Lord, for the blessings you've given to us. Thank you, Lord, for this time we have to be around your table, to bring ourselves closer to you, and to remember that through grace you did save us. Lord, we ask this now that you be with the, the loaf that represents the body that was broken on the cross.
Pray, Lord, that you would forgive us and guide us and direct us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Father God, we continue our prayers and thanksgiving uh, for the fact that you did go to the cross and die for us, and that we would have eternal life with you. Just now we pray that you'd be with uh, the fruit of the vine that represents the blood that was shed. Again, Lord, we ask your forgiveness, and may we look to you for uh, all of our needs and uh, remember your, your sacrifice. In Jesus' name, amen. During this time, we would normally pass the offering plates, but um, now we have the, the black boxes in the back for you to, to drop your contributions in. Uh, let us pray. Father God, we thank you again for the day and all the blessings you've given to us. Lord, we are such a richly blessed uh, nation, and we just thank you for all that you've given to us and allow us to do. Lord, we pray just now that you be with the offering. Pray, Lord, that you have blessed the gift and the giver, and may we give with a cheerful heart. Be with the elders, Lord, as they decide. Uh, how to use those funds, and uh, we just ask for guidance and direction. Be with us and watch over us in Jesus' name, amen. Let's all please stand again. We'll sing hymn number 415 More About Jesus. So at this time, the young children may go to the children's Bible hour. <clears throat> More about Jesus would I know, more of his treasure show, more of his saving hope I see, more of his love to die for me. Him this morning, number 382. 382, kneel at the cross. This time, Brother Chris. 
Good morning. We are in the book of Hebrews this morning, and we are covering chapter 9, at least the first portion of chapter 9. This may be why we have been studying Hebrews. Uh, This lesson, this chapter, is so powerful. Uh, Last week we got into, I suppose, the first part of this uh, lesson, the chapters 8 and 9 of the book of Hebrews are two sides of the same coin. And so Hebrews 8 introduces it. Hebrews 9 uh, talks more about it. But really, we're, we're in the home stretch now of the book of Hebrews. All the way through chapter 13, uh, you're going to find these themes recurrent. Uh, some of these, the things that we talk about today are going to come back up as we go through the rest of the book. And this is really where the meat of Hebrews uh, is, I suppose. A very, very powerful section. So I'm looking forward to studying it with you today. It's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. So, ever since the beginning of time, God has had demands for how he would like to be worshipped. As the creator of the universe, that's his prerogative. He gets to say how we worship him, right? The Hebrew writer says, ever since the Mosaical age, God has had in mind a specific way that he would like to be worshipped. That is no less true under under Jesus' covenant that we enjoy living under today. He has a specific way that he wants to be worshipped. And you find that way in Scripture. And we attempt our best to live by that standard, to worship by that standard. And so some of the things that that we've become accustomed to and that uh, the ways that we worship, we worship in that way because that's the way Scripture has outlined it uh, to be. And that has always been the case. It's, it's, not, it's not the case that he has never cared how we, he was to be worshipped. It seems a lot of times today that folks think that we can just kind of worship however we want and as long as we're worshiping God, then he's pleased with it. But Hebrews 9.1 seems to indicate that that's not the case. Uh, it has always, he has always cared how he is to be worshipped. That's not really what I want to talk about today, though. Listen, dive into the rest of Hebrews chapter 9. It's going to be a little confusing because what he talks about He's going to tell you about the most holy place and the holy place. And he's talking about the Old Testament tabernacle. He's not even talking about the temple yet. He's not, the Hebrew writer is not so much interested in the temple uh, like you you might think he would be. He's interested in the tabernacle. Well, why is he so interested in the tabernacle? Well, because God in Exodus gave Moses an outline, specific instructions on how to build this structure. It's a massive tent, but it's a tent with a specific... It's built in a specific way. The dimensions are specific. It's built with specific uh, materials. And all that stuff is outlined in the book of Exodus, uh, spanning several chapters. So God is very specific. And I think that's one of the things that the Hebrew writer wants you to get. God has always been specific with how he is to be worshipped. And so if we worship in that way, then we're pleasing. If we do not worship in that way, we're we're not pleasing to him. And so that's one of the things that he's going to try to convey to us throughout the rest of this passage. But we're not so much familiar today in the 21st century in American Christianity with the Old Testament tabernacle or the temple or the things that go into it. And so we need to 
dive a little bit into uh, what he's trying to say here. Maybe you've seen this, uh, this bumper sticker uh, on a car behind you or in front of you or whatever. You've seen it as you drive around town. I think that's what he's not saying. Uh, you see a lot of the, uh, the different um, religions across the world um, pictured in this bumper sticker. Coexist is, is the word of the day. Uh, getting along, everyone, uh, there's multiple ways to get to God. Uh, the, the Hebrew writer, God, would say that that is, that is not the case. There are regulations for worship. Um, and so he's going to talk to us about some of these regulations, but he's going to talk more specifically about this place of, of holiness. And so let's listen to what he has to say here in Hebrews 9, uh, verses 2 through 7. He talks about the tent. He says, For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And so if you're familiar with the tabernacle, you kind of have a picture in your head maybe of what he's talking about. This giant tent, it's cut in two. There's this section, the the larger section, it's called the holy place. And there are some things in there. He kind of outlines some of those things there for you. But then as you progress into the tabernacle and one day the temple, um, there will be another place. And it's sectioned off from the holy place by this massive curtain. It's very thick. Uh, And so it runs from the length of the entire tabernacle uh, from floor to ceiling. And there's a little doorway where you would part the curtains. And one person, one man, could walk into this other compartment in the tabernacle. It's called the most holy place. He could walk in there one time every year. And only one guy could do it, and he could only walk in there one time a year. And so access to God has been restricted in the Old Testament. You could not just come to God whenever you wished. You could not come to God however you wished. This one guy came to God in a very specific and a very prescribed way. There were regulations. So, verse 3. Behind the second curtain was the second section called the Most Holy Place having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tables of the covenant. So he's, he's trying to get in our heads this picture of the tabernacle and some of the things that are inside of it. He's not so much interested in the things that are inside of it, though. He's trying to get to a point. He's just not, he just hasn't gotten there yet. We're going to get there. Um, but he, he outlines for you what is in the most holy place. He says that there's the Ark of the Covenant. Now that is incredibly significant to Israel, to the Old Testament nation of Israel. The Ark of the Covenant is where God lives. Um, it's essentially a box, a small box, really. Uh, it would fit perfectly. It's maybe the size of, uh, of our pulpit here from one side to the other and about that height. It's not a very big box. Uh, you can take the lid of the box off. It was designed to be carried um, by about six Israelites, six Levites, in fact, from a specific tribe, a specific family in the, the lineage of Israel. They would carry the box. That's not a heavy box. There are things inside of it. One of those things that's inside of it are the Ten Commandments. There's also a bowl of manna, uh, the little coriander seed-like uh, things that Israel ate in the wilderness while God was uh, feeding them there. Uh, there's Aaron's rod uh, is also in there. Aaron, of course, the, the brother of Moses. 
Uh, and so all those things are in, the, are in the Ark of the Covenant. But by the time this is written, in fact, by the time Jesus would come on the scene uh, uh, in the New Testament, the Ark of the Covenant has gone. It was lost 500 years earlier thanks to the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. They did something with it, or it was hidden, or they destroyed it, or they dismantled it and sold it for the gold that it was made out of. Nobody knows. It's just gone, and all the things that were inside of it were just gone. Um, so all, all that is, is, no, is no more. It's, it's, it's been done away with, uh, even in his day. But he's trying to remind us of what this... Uh, of this uh, tabernacle and the things that go inside of it. So think really big tent. One section is the holy place. It's where any priest could go. At least yeah, any priest could go in there. And there, there were certain priests that were supposed to go in there and, and do a variety of different things in the, most, in the holy place. But then the curtain, you go through it and it's the most holy place. And only one guy could go in there one time a year and he had to go with Blood. He had to go with blood on his hands because he had just killed an animal and the animal was the sacrifice uh, that allowed him to go into the most holy place to meet with God and come back out unscathed because God is just and he's holy and he cannot be in relationship with, cannot talk to sinful and wicked people. And so this guy had to find a way to purify himself. And God said that the way you purify yourself is uh, through the blood. Okay. So that's what, that's what our author is trying to get to us. That's his point. He's trying to get to, uh, across to us. In verse 5, he says, Above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. That last little bit, that last little offhand phrase, we can't talk about this stuff now in detail, indicates to us that he's not really all that interested in these things. He's interested in something else, and he's using these things as an illustration for what he's really interested in. So, what I guess we need to talk about now is this this first part of verse five. So he says that there's there's cherubim on top. So picture the Ark of the Covenant. It's a box. On top of the box, there are cherubim wings that come uh, that meet in the middle. God's presence is said to live in between the cherubim's wings, but in on the back wall of the most holy place, there are cherubim like 20 feet tall cherubim, I believe, uh, that stood up against the wall. You would have looked up to them. They would have been enormous. Uh, and they would have filled the entire back wall. And that is where God would have sat. And the Old Testament Israel thought that, that his feet rested on the, the Ark of the Covenant in between the, the cherubim's wings there. So that's what he's trying to get across. But he's not really interested in those things. And so why is he telling us this stuff? He's trying to teach us that God has always cared how you worship him. There's always been regulations. There's always been restrictions. And under the Old Testament, there were uh, access to God was restricted. Only one guy could come to him one time a year, and then he had to come in a specific prescribed manner. Things have changed, though, haven't they? Under Jesus' covenant, uh, things are, are different. People can come to God now. He wants people us to come to him. Keep on reading. Verse 6, Hebrews 9, verse 6. He says, These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. That word unintentional, you're going to want to underline that. Um, I, th I think there's some significance there. We'll talk about that in just a second. 
So he brings the blood into the most holy place. He offers it for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened, as long as this first section is still standing. Interesting. Which is symbolic for the present age. Even more interesting. Keep reading. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Huh. Okay. But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. So there's an awful lot that, that's, that's said in those few short verses there, isn't there? <coughs> Sorry. Getting over a sinus infection. Um, so that's where we're going to stop this morning. Uh, we're not going to go past verse 10. We'll deal with uh, 11 through the end of the chapter, hopefully, uh, in a couple of weeks. I'll be gone from you next week, uh, going to Fried Hardman's lectureship. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll get back to Hebrews chapter 9 in a couple of weeks. But for right now, we're just going to deal with 1 through 10. So what's he trying to say here? Focus in on that word, unintentional. Unintentional. So did the law of Moses cover intentional sins? You ever thought about it? I never have. Not until, not until I ran across this passage in Hebrews 9, and I read unintentional sins. It, this, this blood covers the priest's unintentional sins, and it covers the unintentional sins of the people. And then the necessary question you have to ask yourself is, well, what about the intentional sins? What about the ones that they did knowing, them that, knowing that they were wrong? What about those sins? Does the law of Moses cover those sins? Or does it not? Seems kind of weird, right? So let's dive into the Old Testament a little bit and see what he has to say. Numbers chapter 15, he says, And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake. When he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him, and he shall be Forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. So he says there's, there's, one, there's one deal here. Uh, if you're a native person, if you're a native Israelite, and you sin unintentionally, there's one law. And if you're uh, a, uh, a sojourner, if you're somebody who's not uh, a native-born Israelite, if you're just somebody that came across and uh, proselyted to Judaism then you have the exact same law as, as the native Israelites. Verse 30, but the person who does anything with a high hand, indicating that uh, it's intentional and he, do, he does it knowingly, whether he is native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be caught off from among his people. So does the Old Testament law cover intentional sins or no? This isn't the only verse like this. There are several verses throughout the Old Testament that say pretty much the same thing as what's said here in Numbers 15. It seems to me that the Old Testament law did not cover intentional sins. In fact, there's a quote uh, from, from some of the rabbis uh, that were living during the Old Testament. And they said this, If one said, I will sin, and the Day of Atonement will affect atonement, then the, day of, then the Day of Atonement affects no atonement. There's an awful lot of atonement there, right? Basically what they're saying is, if you're depending on the Day of Atonement to, to wipe your sins away, and you think you get to live however you want to live, the Old Testament rabbis said, well, that's just not the case. Now, these guys are not inspired, but that is. And so, what are you going to do with that? Does the Old Testament law cover intentional sins or no? I don't think it does. So what are we going to do? Well, 
we have to answer the next obvious question. Does Jesus' covenant cover intentional sins or no? What do you think? Let's, let's go through some verses real quick. James chapter 4. He says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it's sin. That's what Joe read for us this morning, right? So if you want a definition for sin, that's the definition for sin. You know the right thing to do and you refuse to do it. So Jesus' covenant must cover intentional sins. Because that's what sin is. It's, It's intentionality. I intended to do it. If I didn't intend to do it, it wouldn't be sin. We talk a lot about sins of commission and sins of omission, right? Sins that, uh, sins of ignorance versus sins of rebellion, sins of intentionality. The word he uses here in Hebrews chapter 9, interestingly, is sins of ignorance. When he says unintentional sins. So the people that did them were not aware that they were wrong. In the New Testament, he gives you a definition for sin. Romans 7, 7, he says, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. He says, of course not. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it is to covet, if the law had not said, you shall not covet. He says, the law taught me better. And so now that I know better and choose to do wrong, that's sin. So does Jesus' law cover intentional sins? It has to, doesn't it? It has to. That's the glory of His covenant. That's the scandalous nature of His mercy. Even though I sin intentionally, even though I intentionally rebel against Him, even though I know what's right and choose to do what's wrong, His grace covers it. Now, there are some interesting questions that we have to answer from that. We just want to do what the Bible says, right? We just look at the Bible and we see, try to understand what he wants us to understand from it, right? We just want to do what the Bible says. And so we're just trying to follow what the Bible says. And so we look at this and we say, well, it seems like maybe a person can never be lost then. If his grace just covers intentional sins, can, can, a, can a saved person... Go from saved to lost. Well, what's the Bible say? The Bible says, yes. Yes, you can. You can go from being saved to being lost, even though God's grace covers intentional sins. Let me show you these verses. Hebrews chapter 10, um, both of these, in fact, come from the book of Hebrews. I thought that was uh, even more powerful maybe than, than dragging some of these verses from the other parts of the Scripture because they're there, too. The rest of the Bible agrees with Hebrews, obviously, that uh, one can go from being saved to being lost. But these in Hebrews uh, come from the same author. So it seems like maybe they're uh, worthy of, uh, of note today as well. He says, For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. That's Hebrews 10.26. So he seems to indicate seems pretty clear there, that one can go from a saved condition to a lost condition, right? Remember, there are always and always have been and always will be regulations for coming to God. He gets to say how you worship, how you live, how you are saved, and when you are not saved any longer. And so while His grace can and does 
cover intentional sins, I can sin to the point that he removes my salvation. Here it is again in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, 4 through 6. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. Who, who are those people? The enlightened people. Those who have been saved, right? Those who have been baptized, had their sins washed away, who have come to an understanding of God. Those who are saved. For it's impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. That's us. That's the saved people, right? The ones who have been baptized into Christ, had their sins washed away and have come to know him. There's no clearer definition for the church than that. He's talking about saved people. He says it's impossible for us Let's get down to verse 6. Once we've fallen away to restore us again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. So can a person go from a saved condition to a lost condition? Yes. The, the unequivocal word in Scripture is absolutely. You can sin to the point where God removes your salvation. It seems pretty clear, right? Let, let me walk you through a couple more verses, though. Um, in 1 Thessalonians, you find Paul talking to the elect. That, that's what he calls them. Uh, and you find that word here uh, in, in, uh, in verse, uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. You find it a couple times in the book of Thessalonians. When he's talking to the elect, who's he talking to? The saved, the chosen, the ones who were inside Christ, the ones who were God's people. He's talking about the saved. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us. So walk, walk through these verses with me real quick. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you. If there are saved people, the Thessalonians are saved. Right? Without a shadow of a doubt, the Thessalonians would fit into the category of saved people. They're them. God has chosen them. Some translations say he has elected them. And so they're, they're, they can't fall away, right? That, that's what some folks would teach. That's not what the Bible teaches. So that's what some, some people believe, that once you are saved, you cannot be lost. But that, that's not the word from Scripture. Listen, listen to the word from Scripture, because it is actually better than the false doctrine. Listen to the word. First Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 through 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind in Athens alone. So, do you know, just for a second real quick, let's do some background work on the book of First and Second Thessalonians. Paul comes to Thessalonica after having left Philippi. This is in the region of Macedonia, right? Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, several other little cities, but those are the three that are mentioned in Scripture, make up the region known as Macedonia. And Paul was given an open door to teach truth in Macedonia. God opens this door, Paul sees a vision, he goes over to Macedonia, and revolution sweeps through some of these cities in just this most fantastic way. The problem is, while revolution, revival, is sweeping through some of these cities, there's another part of the city that hates that. And they're going to push back. Interestingly enough, a lot of that pushing back, most of it, comes from Jewish people. And so, 
they're going to push back against the Thessalonians uh, and against the Philippians. But even in, in Philippi, the very first city that Paul visits in, in the region of Macedonia, a mob is going to form, and they're going to run Paul out of Philippi. And so he's going to run to Thessalonica. That same mob hears that he's in Thessalonica, and they come over and they run him out of Thessalonica. But he has time to found the church there, but not very much time. He, he, uh, he baptizes these people, and they are saved. The church is going strong, and then this mob comes in, and Paul is forced to leave, flee for his life. But he has to leave the church there in Thessalonica. And so he's concerned that they are going to pull back. That's exactly the circumstance the Hebrew Christians are finding themselves in as the Hebrew writer writes. Some Jewish, or some Jewish uh, the Jewish element, the Jewish people are pushing back at the Jewish Christians. They are hurting them financially, probably physically, although they haven't killed any of them as of the writing of the book of Hebrews. They're making life hard for Jewish Christians. And so this book in Thessalon- uh, the Thessalonican books, the books of First and, Thess- and Second Thessalonians, are right on topic for us. Um, Paul is afraid that this new church, the ones who are saved, the elect, the ones God has chosen, that they're going to fall away. Read what he says. Verse 2. Uh, he says, when we made it to Athens, I couldn't stand it any longer. The, Athens is the very next place he runs to. Uh, after he goes to Berea, he goes to Athens. He said, I couldn't take it. I, I was so worried about you. So we sent Timothy, verse 2, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one may be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are, that we are destined for this, destined for, for hardship. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear, listen to this, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and that our labor and had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. What labor is he talking about there? The cost it, it took him. Uh, to get the, the Thessalonica, the labor that he had in teaching them uh, and converting them over to Christianity and their salvation. These guys are saved. And Paul says, I'm, I'm scared that this mob, that these people are going to push you to the point that you turn away from Christ, that you go from a saved condition to a lost condition. And so he writes this letter to them and he sends Timothy, uh, this guy that he trusts with his life and with their lives, with their faith, with their eternity. He trusts them that much. He sends him to go and shore up their faith. Listen to what he says here. Toward the end of 1 Thessalonians no, verse five, chapter 5. He says, So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and, uh, and love, and for the and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He said he destined you for what? Not for wrath, but for salvation. Can God destine you for something? Can he desire something for you and you not fulfill it? Can you rebel against God to that point? Yes. Look what he says in Acts 13. 
For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you, might, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Made and destined are the exact same word in Greek. You can go back and look it up. They're the exact same word. So God made the Israelites. He destined them. He wanted them to be what? A light to the Gentiles. Were they? No. So God desired them to do something. He wanted them. He had destined them. He made them to do something. But they didn't do it. Just because you were destined for salvation and not wrath does not mean that you can't push off, push away God's destiny for you, what he's designed you to do. You can, we can be lost. Like we said, the truth of Scripture is actually better than the lie. People thought that uh, for whatever reason, maybe Scripture was too harsh or they misunderstood some of these verses or, or didn't look at the, the whole counsel of God in this matter of salvation and being going from saved to lost, and, and they misconstrued some things here. But when you look at the whole counsel of God, all the verses that, that talk about this, this topic, you find the truth, like it always is, is better than the lie. And so I can go from a lost or from a saved condition into a lost condition. I can go from saved to lost. But we know from Hebrews 9 and from other places in scripture that Jesus's blood covers my intentional rebellious sins. And so where's the line? You know what I'm saying? Where where's the line? Where at what point does God remove my salvation from me because of intentional rebellious sin. Some of it he covers, but at some point it comes to a point where he doesn't cover it anymore. And so where's the line? That's kind of what we're probably all thinking, right? Where, where, can, you draw, where can you draw the line? Got a couple of thoughts. God knows when my heart has turned away from him. At that point, it seems to me that he would remove my salvation. When my heart has so turned away from him, when I'm not concerned with his agenda, with his priorities, when I don't want those things anymore, he removes my salvation. Now, is that something you can see? Is that something I can judge? No. Why not? Because I can't see your heart and you can't see mine. So I can't tell you when you've crossed that line. But God can. And you probably know it too. As a matter of fact, if we're asking the question, where's the line? We may be asking the wrong question. And we may have already crossed the line to begin with, hadn't we? Sometimes uh, my family, we have a fire pit in our backyard. And sometimes we... Uh, get outside and roast marshmallows and, and do s'mores and stuff. It's, it's fantastic. But if you've ever had small children, what do they do? What do they love to do? I don't know why we. I did it when I was a kid. I don't know why we love this, but we want to see how close we can get to the fire. We want to play right around the fire. And what do, what do us parents say? Stay away from the fire. You're gonna get, you're gonna get burned, right? It feels like when we ask this question, it feels like what we're really saying is, how much can I sin and still get what I want? That's the wrong question. Do, do we see that? It's a lot like a kid holding his hand out to the flame saying, are the welts from the burns 
going to come up if I stand this close? How about this close? How about this close? That's what we're doing. We're, we're seeing how close to the line that we can get before we are lost. And that's the craziest question that we could ever contemplate. The real question that we should be asking is, how close can I get to God? Not how close can I get to sin? Once I start thinking, how close can I get to sin? My salvation might already be in jeopardy. Right? I'm not thinking right. I need to be thinking, you need to be thinking, how close can I get to God? What can I do that's in line with his will? What can I do that will push me to love him more and more? What can I do to get closer to him? So I can go from a saved condition to a lost condition. God's grace, Jesus' blood does cover intentional sins. The point is, do I love him more or do I love me more? If I love me more, then I see how close I can get to sin. And I live my life, and I do whatever I want, and I'm toying with my salvation and my eternity. Like a kid with a fire. If I love him more, then I see how, what I can do that will bring me closer to him. And my salvation is intact. Hebrews 9 is a powerful, powerful passage. And there's a lot of other things that we need to talk about. Maybe we, maybe we come back next in the next couple of weeks and shore up some more of this stuff. Um, but what I really wanted to get across to you today is salvation is possible. And you can know that you are saved. Like we've talked about today, intentional sins can and are covered by Jesus' blood. That's the power of Jesus' covenant. You sin intentionally. I do too. We make choices that are rebellious in nature knowing that we do them. So how do we stay inside of Christ? His blood covers those things. Now, I don't just get to continue sinning rambunctiously with no regard to him and keep my salvation. That's not how it works. But if my heart and my mind are focused on getting closer and closer to him and I've done what I needed to do to be saved in the first place and my heart and my mind are, getting, are focused on getting closer and closer to him, I can be positive that I'm saved. So the question you've got to be asking now is, how, what do I need to do on my end to be saved? God saved us by grace, right? Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by his, his kindness, he, he moved first. He saved us. But how, how, what, what do I need to do on my end to be saved? Well, I have to be immersed in the water. Well, why water? I don't know. That's what he said. It, it, water washes it away, and our immersion into it is the means in, in which that he has used to wash our sins away so that we can come before him. Remember, access to God was restricted in the Old Testament because people could not have clean consciences. That's the rest of Hebrews 9. Baptism cleans your conscience and it wipes away your sins. And you are clean and just and holy before God. 
And so you can have relationship with him now. As long as your heart and your mind are focused on getting closer and closer to him and not looking for the line for sin. And so this morning, if you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting on? There's an ocean of grace waiting for you inside the baptistry as your sins are washed away. He anoints you and puts you into his family, anoints you with salvation. It's the most incredible blessing. Maybe you've already made that decision this morning and you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be, to do, to yearn, to long for the things of God. If you've stepped away from him this morning, all it takes is one step toward him. And he is so willing to forgive in such a scandalous and and amazing way. All it takes is one step. Ask for his mercy. Repent of what you've done. And he gives you scandalous grace. If you have that need this morning, why don't you come as we stand and sing. Good morning. Just have a few announcements before we're dismissed. Uh, don't forget our potluck today, immediately following our morning service, and we invite everyone, especially if you're visiting with us, with us we invite you to stay and enjoy us, join us for a meal and fellowship. Our afternoon service will be uh, after that at 1 p.m., and we'll have no uh, 4 p.m. service today. 
Also, our uh, service projects, which were scheduled today, have been canceled due to Jenny Garlic's funeral. We'll pick back up with those next month. Stepping Stone Supper this coming Wednesday night from 5.30 to 6.30. Homemade soup and sandwiches will be served. For our youth, uh, CYC is fast approaching, February 25th through 27th. There's a sign-up sheet on the foyer board for snack and food items that are needed. So if you could take a minute to look over that and, and sign up, I know they would greatly appreciate it. Bible Bowl at Centerville Church of Christ. That will be March 5th and 6th. And there's a sign-up on the foyer board if you plan to participate, and that is for both our youth as well as adults. Uh, last reminder, if you haven't filled out the elder survey, uh, they are still out in the uh, foyer. If you could pick one up this morning and complete that and put it back in the uh, white mailbox, uh, which is also out in the, uh, the foyer, we would greatly appreciate that. Valentine's cards for our college students. Uh, if you could bring those by February the 9th and give those to, to Dave. Uh, they plan on mailing those out on February the 10th. Um, we want to extend our sympathy this morning to the family of Jenny Garlic. Uh, Jenny passed away on Wednesday, and there's going to be a public graveside service in her memory this afternoon at 2.30, and that'll be at the Crown City Cemetery. Uh, to continue to remember Rod and Angie and all of Jenny's family in our prayers at this time. Um, as you guys know, um, you know we truly have lost a, a beautiful uh, Christian lady in, in Jenny's passing. Also, Karina Calicote's sister-in-law, Alma Edwards, passed away, and we put Karina's address uh, in Tennessee on the foyer board, so um, keep Karina and the family in, in our prayers. Um, as far as prayer list goes, um, continue to pray for Kristen and James and and their family at this time. Also, Marvin Jordan, uh, continue to pray for him as he recovers from, from back surgery, and continue to keep little Nash Walker in our prayers as he recovers from surgery from um, a dog bite. And again, this is uh, Brandon and Leslie's uh, son, as well as Jackie and Jeff Floyd's grandson. Um, that's all the announcements I have. Just a reminder to pick up a, uh, a Rome update and a foyer and uh, with all the names that uh, are on the prayer list and, and do that each week and, and keep those individuals in our prayers. Gary? Karina is home. Oh, okay. Okay, so Karina is home, so no need to, to uh, send her a card in Tennessee. She's home now. Any other announcements that need to be made? Okay. We'll have uh, one more song and be dismissed in prayer. Let's all please stand again and sing hymn number 160, Glory to His Name. We started off with that song this morning, and we'll sing another version of it at this time. We'll sing the first and second verse, and then Brother Drew Clark will have a prayer. Down at the cross where my Savior died, down where for cleansing from sin I cried, there to my heart was the blood.
Father, we thank you for this day that we've that you've allowed us all to come here and sing praises to you and and study your word. We pray a special prayer for those among us who may have recently lost loved ones. We pray that you allow a special understanding to come into their heart for for those events, and we pray that you watch over them and and, and help them understand those situations. Father, we also pray that as we depart here today, that. You help us lead lives in the week ahead that, that are pleasing unto you, and, and you help us to make decisions that, that in your eyes are the correct ones. Father, as we get ready to leave this room and, and go partake of the potluck dinner, we pray that you'll bless the food and bless those that prepared it, and that as we do depart this building today, that you'll watch over us and keep us safe until we do return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. I have-